0: Right, welcome to the um, professionalism uh, session. Um, before, we, um, before I announce the, the session and the speakers, just an announcement um, from the previous session from Brian. Um, uh, Brian, just let us know that you can access all his work um, on zaeconomist.com, so um, please, please make sure to um, check out that website uh, after, after the sessions today. Right, then if we um, can move on to the professionalism session. Uh, thank you very much to Nico van der Kolf who will be um, leading the session for us. Uh, it will be an interactive session, but just allow me to introduce Nico, and then I'll, um, I'll, I'll join the floor where I'll participate in the session as well. So, um, Nico has more than 20 years life insurance experience across a range of financial and risk product roles. Currently, he's in the Fin Risk Services Head of Actuarial and Reporting for All Mutual Emerging Markets. He's also a member of the Council of the Actuarial Society, and important for today's session, he's um, chair of the Professional Matters Board. Um, So, Niku, thank you very much for leading the session, and we're looking forward to it. Thanks.
1: Maybe a first comment. After all the entertaining speakers we've already had today, um, that's probably why we have to make this interactive, because, you know, then at least you're the entertaining speakers for this session rather than me. Um, It's very nice having... um, this lot, I've um, thanked them in Cape Town as well um, because normally we keep professional for that very last lot of the day when everyone's really keen to go home but they need the CPD so they stick around and um, it's much nicer being now rather than, than then or in the graveyard shift so thanks for that again. Um, the, the, the first thing I thought was quite an interesting thought which had come to me during the course of last year when all of this was happening and the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's something I think we as actors can probably learn from that discussion. And it serves as quite nice framing for today because uh, we will be doing a couple of case studies and um, it, it ties quite nicely together when, when we start here. I mean, when, when Oscar was being uh, tried in court, the key question was, did someone die in an accident? Did they die because of culpable homicide or did they die because it was murder? Um, I don't know how many people here think they know the difference between those three things, um, other than the fact that of course for the first one, the murder one, you can go to jail for the rest of your life potentially. For the culpable homicide it's a max of 15 years and for the accident you go home. But um, <laughs> Does anyone wave me a hand if you think you kind of know what the difference between the three things are fundamentally? Oh, good. I didn't want to waste too many people's times. In law, the key difference between those three things are the extent of guilt. Um, In an accident, there is no guilt. In a murder, there's intent. And in culpable homicide, there's negligence. And it's pretty clear that when we think about unprofessional conduct, There's the possibility of being unprofessional or unethical by intent, and there's the the possibility to be unprofessional or um, unethical negligently. And the definitions for these things are also quite useful to just think about. I mean, intent is you deliberately did something, or you deliberately did something else which inevitably implies the thing that you're being accused of, or you deliberately did something that logically could or should imply the the probability of the thing you're being tried for happening, and normal people would have taken some precautions which you didn't take for this event that is kind of a, a, a logical probability of what you're doing. That's the version of intent that eventually on appeal, um, Oscar was um, deemed to have, which made it back into murder. The culpable homicide negligence one is that reasonable people would have taken precautions against this um, unlikely outcome, but still an outcome that could happen and you failed to do so. Um, It's the version of not locking your door before cleaning your gun type thing almost. That's negligent because someone could walk in um, and an accident can happen. Um, But that would be culpable homicide because you didn't take the precautions potentially. So the videos we're dealing with today, we've got two video case studies which um, it's very nice to be able to see those of you who still have dual membership um, thank you because you sponsored some videos for us and we got them from the Institute and Faculty of Actories. And one of them deals more with an intent type issue where you can land in a situation where there's a temptation to do something that's wrong. And the other deals a bit more with a scenario in which People were kind of trying to do their jobs, but in the sequence of events, it didn't quite work out the way it should have, and therefore, um, conduct becomes questionable because the precautions weren't in place. Um, The way it'll work is, um, we've learned from Cape Town not to to, um, slice the videos too much and have too much discussion in between because then the session would have lasted for three hours. Maybe we'll do that for a future CBD session. I haven't gotten to the point of stitching them all back together into one video, so we'll run through a couple of the videos and then we'll do the questions at the end. And that's going to be done by saying, as we sit on the floor, find three or four people and in groups of three or four just chat through the questions. Once we've chatted through questions, we're going to have a, a big forum dis- the discussion again just to say uh, what were the interesting points that came up in your smaller group discussions and what were the things that in your smaller group discussions felt like a really thorny question that might be worth um, throwing open to the whole floor. Um, The good news, therefore, is that you should only be counting professionalism CPD if you actually learn something from it. So um, that means the onus will be fully back on you to try and get that value into your small group discussion. Um, The good news on the last point is um, these things have deliberately been picked by the IFOA not to have... Um, very strong right and wrong answers that you couldn't actually find a way of explaining that because you believe this, you could actually justify some other answer too. So don't, don't feel like there's a best answer for each of these things. There probably are better answers and worse answers, but some features sometimes can, can cross over quite, quite nicely, so everyone does have value to add. With that, straight into the content.
2: Making jobs can be a complicated process, a nightmare. Hi, I'm Clive Spongy, and you may remember me from other actuarial training videos, such as Being Prudent, for Safety in Numbers, Assumption 2, The Return of the Assumption, and the award-winning I Is Not a Number, Yet I Is One. Hi. (laughs) Hi, I'm Jolion Joyce. I know what you're thinking. Hey Clive and Jolien. what are some of the main issues when moving from one actuarial job to another? Hmm, well, one of the main issues to consider is when, how, and even if, to use the knowledge and information gained from your present company and apply it to your new role in a different organisation. Well, you're in the right place. That's what this video is all about. So, let's get that show on the road nice that's Eric Eric's an actuary with very detailed knowledge in quite a specific area of liability hmm well you wouldn't actually know it would you Julian he keeps it very well hidden much like Clark Kent <laughs> The similarities are uncanny. Eric's current employer is Bloom Inc. A market leader in Eric's area of expertise. But Eric feels it's now time for a change. So he's accepted a job offer with a rival firm, GT Insurance. Hmm. GT Insurance will be looking to use Eric's experience and expertise to build their own offering in liability insurance. Eric's got a few reservations, though, about this job offer. So he decides to talk things through with his friend, Sarah, who is a trainee lawyer. Hmm. In a nutshell, Eric is worried about what, in terms of his professional knowledge, is okay to use in his new job. Ah. GT insurance are employing him because of what he knows. But everything he knows has been gained at Bloomink. Blue Bloom Mink may feel it belongs to them. But Jolian, Eric can't suddenly unknow what he knows, <laughs> can he? So what's he supposed to do? That's a great question, Clive. Thanks, Jolian. Eric's telling Sarah that he thinks the general knowledge that he has, uh, what he's gained from doing his actuarial exams, is okay to use in his new job, even though he's designed some products with his professional knowledge for Bloom Inc. Hmm. Sarah agrees. Then Eric tells Sarah about some training notes he has in writing. The notes originally were provided by Bloom Inc but Eric has added to them over the years, often in his own time, and has developed his own training methods. He's thinking of using the notes to put together a training program for GT insurance. This time, Sarah shares her concerns. But Julian, Eric did a lot of this work in his own time. Hmm, I'm not sure that really matters though, Clive. And neither is Sarah. Well then, heck, Jolien, what exactly can Eric take to his new role? Hmm, there's a lot to consider, Clive. There sure is. Think about the actor's Code. Ah. Isn't there a section in integrity? And what about personal circumstances? If Eric leaves Blue Mink on bad terms, he might be more likely to want to do them harm in the marketplace. Yes, but if he leaves on really good terms, and still knows a lot of people who work there, he might make professional decisions that would favour Bloom Inc, but he has a duty now to GT insurance. Hmm. Exactly. So what exactly is he supposed to do? What are the boundaries? When it comes to professional knowledge, what exactly are the boundaries of what's acceptable and what isn't? All great questions, Clive, but I'm not the person to ask. Oh, I'm intrigued, Julian. Who should we ask? Ask them. Okay. So, what should he do? Where do the boundaries lie? And when it comes to professional knowledge... You don't need to repeat the question, Clive. What? You don't need to repeat the question. Oh, right. Smile. Nice.
3: Mm.
2: Getting a little more specific, Eric tells Sarah that Blooming did extensive research into brokers. From that research, Eric knows which brokers are best to deal with. He also knows which brokers to avoid, specifically, one highly regarded broker for which Bloomink uncovered a critical weakness. As far as Sarah's concerned, Eric now has a duty to GT Insurance. But she also thinks it's unrealistic for anyone to expect Eric to unknow what he knows. So she thinks it's okay for him to use his broken knowledge in his new job. But it's important to remember, Clive, that Blooming regard their research as a critical differentiator when it comes to their competition. Yup, Julian, it's a tricky one. So, what do you think? Okay, so it's three months on and Eric is doing well in his new job at his new company. But Eric's manager has just asked him to provide some initial thoughts on a brand new service that GT Insurance is thinking of offering. A service that would be the first of its kind in the marketplace. The only trouble is that in the last few months of Eric's time at Inc, he discovered that they too were planning on launching the exact same service within the next six months. So what should Eric do? Should he tell GT Insurance about Blooming's plans? That's the big question, Clive. It sure is. Nothing's ever straightforward in these actuarial videos, is it, Jeremy? No, it isn't, Clive. Last one. Hey Clive, what you got there? Well, Jolien, it's actually a copy of Eric's employment contract from Bloom Inc. How would you get hold of that? That's not important right now. What is important is that it says this. You may not disclose or make available to others any confidential information or intellectual property relating to current prospective business developed, used or possessed by Bloom Inc. These restrictions apply even after leaving the employment of Bloom Inc. Interesting stuff, Clive. Hmm. Do you know what's in your employment contract? Food for thought, Jolien. Well, that's it till next time. So it's goodbye from me, Clive Spongy. And it's goodbye from me, Jolien Joyce.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye. Okay, find yourself a couple of uh, willing co-conspirators and there's a set of questions to talk through. (laughs) Okay, I think um, let's get things back into the big group. I assume we'll have a a couple of roving mics for those who want to make comments or questions in the bigger um, crowd. So just raise your hand so that they can see that you've got something that you thought was quite interesting from your discussion and want to share with everyone or if you've got a question to ask. Any of the questions, so just tell us um, which question and what your comment or question is.
4: Um, so maybe not i 'm not sure which question relates to, but maybe you can just try and match the answer to a question um, <laughs> 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 um, but But one of the things that you that you must try and avoid is actually to try and preempt sort of conflict uh, situations that you might get into. So one of the things that we thought about is to say, well, maybe um, when you're having the job interview with the new employer, um, at the point where you maybe get the offer, um, at that point you can start asking questions like, you know, why are you actually hiring me? Um, You know, if I were to get in a situation where, well... (laughs) uh, (laughs) So you're changing jobs regularly. (laughs) So. But, but, but basically, to, to actually maybe explore the kind of situations that you might be in um, with your new employer, and then maybe just to set expectations as to how you might handle that. So, I mean, but, but your new employer knows how you might be looking and thinking about things before they even employ you. Something like that, because it's always better to try and avoid these things or, or anticipate them, and to get into that position.
1: Yes, thanks for that. I mean, I think the employment contract one is one that was um, very interesting. I'm, I'm tempted to go Cape Town crowd. It was pretty obvious that um, reading a, an employment contract that goes along with an offer of employment is something that um, some energy goes into the benefits, but not that much into the, um, <laughs> the constraints on IP and confidentiality and the rest. Um, I mean, Do people here generally feel they know? Raise of hands, who who, who thinks that they know quite well what is in their employment contract in this regard? Okay, quite similar to Cape Town. Mostly probably not, so that's quite an interesting one because that talks to the same discussion. That's typically where the question should come up. If your new employer um, sends you the contract, you'll notice that there's a confidentiality of information and an IP generated discussion in there, which is a very healthy one, to go, well, I had this in my previous one, too, so um, are you guys aware that not everything can be shared? Another comment, question, up front here. Um, For me, a comment is whether these um, scenarios, questions, or comments can be enforceable in 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 the court of law. So, you have a graduate, uh, he's very desperate, he wants to get a job. He comes in, you pay him as little as possible because you want to get as much output as possible from him. or oh, hey, good. It, it all sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then, he gets a better offer somewhere, he jumps ship by a blink of an eye. Now, even if this thing gets to a court of law, the judge can always say, yes, but these things were in the contract, but this guy wanted a job, and there's no way that actually he could have read these laws or these statements in the first place. So now, these things might not necessarily be enforceable, and that's where the biggest trick can lie. Our South African courts are um, quite strict on contracting freedom. You did not have to sign the contract. So they'll typically try and enforce the contract within what is reasonable. And um, desire not to read your contract is probably not going to be a good defense. Um, (laughs) But Or the thickness of it may well not be a good defense. But what um, will be an example is, I mean, I know from my own employment contract, there's quite a broad clause there that's protecting the company's interests quite well with regards to, IP generated while I work for them. I mean, it includes, if you just read the wording, it potentially even includes a song I write over the weekend, um, which clearly uh, courts would not interpret it to be overly broad, but they would probably try and enforce what's in your employment contract. So um, uh, I'd be a little bit careful to assume that it doesn't matter. (laughs) Okay. Any others? We move, and there's one more right at the back. Yeah. We spent quite a lot of time talking about the situation when you move from one
2: employer to another employer in exactly the same role, um, particularly if those two are in, in in competition with one another. And there, I, I, when, when when I did when I moved the first time, this is exactly the position I found myself in. Uh, and there were on quite a few occasions, my boss would ask me a question that I knew was commercially sensitive to my previous employer, and I basically had to say to him, "I'm sorry, I can't actually answer that question." Um, and my defense was always that if and when I leave your employee and I go and go to somebody else, would you not want me to respect your confidential information the same way? And that was always accepted as, as a re- valid answer.
1: Thanks, that's very valuable. Okay, any others? Would do you want us to move on to the other case study? Okay, looks like we'll be moving on then. This next one I thought it's probably worth doing the the one slide just to say the, the characters in this um, are all in actuarial roles, are, are all actuaries but not necessarily all in hardcore actuarial roles. So the first three are clearly the actuary doing the work, which I think all of us can sympathize with. Because either we did that at some point, or, or we're still doing it. Um, the senior actuary who has a bit of a review-taking accountability for output a bit more role. Um, a chief actuary, but um, I suppose it's fair to say if you if you look at the the videos, you'll notice that this doesn't feel much like chief actuaries in South Africa. It's probably worth thinking about this as a very really long, a, a very strong first line of defence commercial um, head of actuarial. Um, a project leader who's kind of trying to get a project, a product into market, and um, someone who sits there on the board who has to get the board comfortable with what this project's bringing there. So that's the, the characters involved.
5: Okay, Georgina, here's the work for the new CoverMax product you asked for.
3: Thank you, Stefan. I appreciate all the hard work.
5: No problem. It wasn't completely straightforward, but we got there in the end.
3: You're an actuary now, Stefan. Nothing's ever straightforward.
5: (sighs) Agreed. The main problem was that so much has been affected by the recently changed regulatory requirements, Hmm. most of which I've never seen before. Requirements all seem rather unclear. So I broke everything down and based all my work on several different interpretations.
3: OK, well, I'm going to go read through all this with a cup of tea. (laughs) A big cup of tea.
5: (laughs) Enjoy. I've got to go sort my stuff out for when I head to Marrakesh next week.
3: Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Beautiful place, Morocco. Loved it.
5: Yeah. I need the break, to be honest. Anyway, I'll leave you to it. Oh, I've also notated in there the differences in predicted profit margins. It depends on which interpretation you choose, really. One basis could be very profitable, the other only marginally. And in the worst case scenario, it will require capital support from headquarters with huge losses as a result.
3: Well, if you've written it all down, then I'm happy. Now, I must go and read through this lot whilst I can still feel my arms.
2: <laughs> See ya.
5: Sarah said you needed me.
3: Yeah. It's about this report. Now, I've had a read through it. Well most of it and although I appreciate all your hard work it all seems rather inconclusive long
5: oh okay
3: what you've done is very good Stefan probably a little too good in fact the problem is the work you've done is so detailed it's actually obscuring the information we need I tell you what why don't we well you split the document up into a main report and a separate appendix. Okay. Yeah? Okay, so we put all the detailed work and findings in the appendix and keep the main report for the juicy stuff, the central estimate. Sure, we can mention there are other possibilities, but we don't need to make such a big deal out of them. Look, I know you're about to go off on holiday, but... I really think it's not going to take too long for you to turn around. You are the best person to sort this. We're so close. Sure thing, boss. Afternoon Viraj.
6: Good to see Georgina.
3: Here's the report we've been working on. We think we're in a pretty strong position to go to the board. Good. There was quite a bit of work involved but I believe we've covered all bases. Oh dear. Oh dear what, Viraj?
6: Well, whilst I can see this is all very good work and I can really see the hours that you've put into it, but I don't think this will be suitable when it comes to briefing the board.
3: Oh, really? Well, I
6: thought... It's too long, Georgina. We don't want to overload people with a mass of complicated jargon, loads of caveats and a whole range of different outcomes. What I want you to do is to reduce the whole thing down to three pages, write it in plain English, and let's give them a clear and concise message. At the end of the day, we don't want to bored, bored.
3: <laughs> <laughs> OK, shouldn't be a problem. Thanks, Farage.
6: One more thing. Please give the whole thing a much more positive feel. Some of the assumptions seem rather cautious and we can't um, justify excessive pessimism in our world. Uh, Please rework some of the numbers to a more realistic basics. Okay. And once you and your team have done that, please bring it back to me. Sure thing. Remember Georgina, less is more, less is more. Ah, ma'am, just the person I wanted to see.
7: Well, here I am, but uh, better make it quick. I've got loads of things to sort out before I head to New York for this board meeting.
6: Well, you will need this then. It's the report that we've written up on CoverMax for you to take to the board.
7: Oh, yes, of course, yes. That was on my list of things to chase up this afternoon. Um, I'll read it on the plane. I'm sure it's got all the information I need. It's just, there are so many things I need to do. I don't even think I'm gonna have time to have lunch with the team later.
6: Okay, not a problem. If you've got any problems, give me a call. Okay. Have a safe flight.
7: Hi, Viraj, it's Mel. Uh, I literally landed twenty minutes ago. No, I'm I'm presenting in forty minutes. Viraj, I, I can't hear you very well. Are you outside? Uh, okay, we, we better make this quick then. Um Look, uh, Viraj, uh, about this CoverMax report, uh, there's a bit of a problem. No, I'm I'm not saying there's a problem with the work. It's just, I don't have the CoverMax report with me. I I must have left it on my desk in the rush, Viraj. Um, Excuse me, do you mind turning the radio down? What? No, I... I didn't have time to read it through before I left. Female? What female? Oh, email. No, we we really don't have time for that. I mean, I'm minutes away and the internet isn't working on my phone. I mean, it it wasn't a very long report, Viraj, so can you just give me the details? Yep, Yeah, I've got a pen and paper in my hand now. Okay. Short to medium term forecasts, one million. Uh, Pounds or dollars? What? Excuse me, do you mind turning the radio down?
0: I really listen to the spirit in which it's offered. It's
7: about four minutes long. But um, okay, 500 million worldwide premium over the next three years. Uh, profits? Okay. Claims benchmarked. Staffing needed in what areas? Say again, Viraj. Okay, um, and loss ratios are good, the capital requirements, oh oh, that's great news, y- you did what? Uh, Verage,
8: Verage,
3: everyone this is Mel,
8: Mel's come over from London today to talk us through the progress made on a new product she's currently working on. Go ahead, Mel. Thanks, Jacqueline. Uh, Hi all. Yeah, I'm here to talk
7: about the positive stuff from the work we've been doing on a a new product, CoverMax. I mean, the product itself actually requires very little capital to run um, and we're already seeing profits across the board, uh, some of which are actually quite significant. Excellent. Indeed. Obviously. I won't bore you with the in-depth data and stats, but it, it is safe to say that everyone back in London is really excited about this. I bet. We do require finance for the big marketing push we plan to do in the UK before we launch globally, but um, as I've said, this really is going from strength to strength and our expectations are nothing but positive.
8: Well, this seems like a no-brainer to me. I believe that we should support the great work going on CoverMax. I propose that we allocate the required capital toward the project in order to keep the profit margins heading the way they currently are. All those in favor? Excellent. Well, that's that then. Right, uh, next item. Allow me to read you a letter, which we received from the regulator not two days ago. From our review of your annual regulatory returns and subsequent discussion, we are writing to confirm that our view is that you have materially understated the necessary capital requirements relating to the CoverMax product. And that as a result, You are in breach of your regulatory capital requirements. We require you to inform us within 28 days that you have remedied the situation. I am absolutely seething. This is not what was presented to me and the Board. We will find out who is responsible for this and there will be severe repercussions. Mark my words.
7: one angry isn't a strong enough word to describe how i'm feeling right now
6: the board has to take responsibility for this they are always saying they never have time to read in-depth and overly complicated documents so as usual we package these into smaller and more concise reports for them to look over they've never had a problem with this sort of process before
3: i'm really not worried i'm more than happy that i did my job We put together a really good report that set out all of the options, the pros and cons, and the assumptions. I wrote that in the full report.
5: Brilliant. I knew this would happen. I said from the outset that I didn't exactly know how to interpret the rules, and that different interpretations gave different answers. No one listened to me, and I was told to just get on with it. This was actually the very opening to my report, but I was told to remove it as it was too in-your-face, so I took it out.
7: As a result of other people's failures, my reputation in the company is completely destroyed. Sending me all the way to America with incorrect information. As I say, embarrassing. If they knew this was a risk all along, they had a responsibility to make it clear.
6: They wanted more concise information. If they don't understand a critical point, well, that's the risk they take for not making the effort
3: conservative interpretation of required regulatory capital may result in an adverse strain to our balance sheet and invalidate our assumptions regarding the contract fulfilling our return or capital requirements. What was the point? I was never entirely happy with the summary Virage insisted we write. I mean, come on, you can't properly communicate the risks of a complex situation if people aren't really willing to read more than a few pages.
5: If the people above me decide to rewrite my report to make it more acceptable and to change the numbers while I'm away, then that's up to them. I can't control how people use my work.
7: Why do we pay Actuaries all this money?
1: Initially, when I saw this, I thought they were doing quite well at exaggerating some of the stuff I've seen happening quite regularly. And um, then in Cape Town, people told me they were underplaying it. So maybe um, <laughs> it's good that we get to the questions. <laughs> um, there's the there's the list of questions to discuss in your smaller groups again. Okay, let's start... Um, pulling things together so that we can still get going for lunch. Um, <laughs> let's, let's try and not touch that sacrosanct deadline. Um, any comments or questions on any of those questions? Hands up so that the microphones can come to you. Nothing. This is all very <laughs> straightforward. Any comments on who's to blame? <laughs> I like that answer. Sorry. Nico, yeah.
2: Um our little group concluded it was the board that was to blame. Um, and because they hadn't put in place proper processes to make sure that all the risks were addressed as the product went through the, the cycle. So Solvency 2, Sam, there we go, pillar 2, all missing.
1: Feels a bit familiar
2: does indeed. Thanks.
1: <laughs> Maybe the, the most interesting question which is worth getting some comments on is that very last one. Did anyone come up with good ideas on how to avoid this because this did feel way too familiar? Um,
6: we felt that uh, there was a problem in that as the message passed across the chain, uh, it became less and less about risk. and it was was being dealt with by people who were less interested in risk. Uh, um, And then there needs to be perhaps a buffer at the very end of that process, which I think now would probably be the chief risk officer somebody, ideally I think an actuary in this case, who can ask the right questions, who can uh, filter out or or determine that somehow uh, information is not there that that the board needs to see. Because ordinary board members, non-execs, can't ask those questions.
1: Any other ideas or comments? Uh, Pete at the back.
6: Peter Carswell from Milliman. Um, I'd like to challenge that very last statement that you made, which is that ordinary board members can't ask the right questions. Because I think that one of the right questions is, what can go wrong in the real world that's going to cause this not to work? And I think that that's a very simple question that every board member can ask, should ask. And when the presenter suddenly fumbles and goes I don't know the answer you can throw it back and say well then you haven't done your homework well enough and I think the chief factory should have been fired
1: (laughs) okay it sounds like there's a couple of people here if this was their company we'd have five people out of a job I think I'm going to move on in the interest of just saying. Um, one of the bits on communication, we as a professional matters board had been debating for a while whether we needed to put more um, guidance out on communication, because it is an area that I think I would I would venture to guess it's probably one of the highest risk areas for unprofessional conduct due to negligence along these lines, and um, because it's something we do quite a lot of in informal ways, etc. and and what, is, what are the best practices there, what should we be aiming at. And while we were debating whether we needed more guidance, we um, reread our own guidance we'd already um, approved. And so I thought it's a good idea to flag for people that SAP 901 is on the website. It was ISAP1 internationally for those who've read the international ones. And it contains a lovely piece specifically on communication, things like having to pick um, what makes... communication appropriate to the intended user, what's the form and the content, what's the clarity, Um, can't be too long after the fact, Um, the actuary providing it must be identified. If I think of the number of emails I've seen where um, there's a document in that comes from one actuary but someone else is forwarding it, whose content is it really, some of those things um, it's important to identify from whom the message is coming and whose message it is. Um, And then if there's a report which Sometimes it is something formal enough, if that's the right answer and it says you should do it unless there's a good alternative, um, what's the content, what's the disclosures, who's the author, what's the form of it, and what constraints are there on using it. So this is um, quite a useful one as, um, I was tempted to say bedtime reading, but that doesn't sound right, daytime reading, clearly riveting stuff. It's not a long read. I put it all in there for those who are too lazy to go source the document. You can source the presentation afterwards and you'll have it all there too. Just the communication piece. So This was, I thought, quite a useful one. For a conclusion, I thought it might be a, a good one just to circle back to the intent and negligence piece we started, where sometimes there's the temptation to use something you probably know you shouldn't, because your employer might just give you a bonus. Um, how do you protect yourself against that? And we had quite good comments from the floor as well about um, disclosing stuff early, stuff that isn't done in secret um, is a lot less likely to be problematic than stuff that is done in secret. Um, and it's also the what was done by the, the actuarial person in that situation by going to ask someone else for some additional perspectives. is probably one of the best ways of um, protecting yourself against temptation that eventually causes unprofessional conduct of intent. Um, on the, the the negligence one, I um, thought a, lo- a little bit about it as well, and that's why we put the picture of the, the hedges up there. So the spotlight tends to work for the intent bits, but the hedges is probably a good way to avoid negligence. If you know that you're going to be at some point walking through a park in the dark and you might not want to step into the flowers, then you plant a hedge in advance to keep you out of the areas where you don't really want to be. And you plant the hedge in advance of when the behavior comes so that the hedge can keep you on the straight and narrow. Um, And that's the sort of thing where by thinking in advance of being in that overworked, stressed, whatever scenario, you can start going, what is my approach to these things? Do I have a process? Do I know how I target it? So I'm going to take some examples of questions that um, we've come up with which – Helps point at some of these hedges. Um, have you planned appropriately in your diary to have enough time for um, CPD and what it is you should be acquiring? Um, have you thought about the level of ambition you should have to grow your accountability to ever more, to keep earning ever more when your experience might not have um, grown at the rate required yet, and then you end up with less margin than you need to think? Um, Do you have good habits when it comes to the way you communicate, the the, the style, the format, how you show authorship, um, is your communication good enough to help people know? Um, On getting the required information, do you have a habit of reading the paperwork that is necessary to do the work that you should be doing, Um, reading guidance notes, reading legislation if you're in a field that you haven't been to that requires that? Do you think, before you say yes to a piece of work, whether it is a piece of work? And do you actually create some mechanism for yourself to be able to pause before you go, yes, of course I can do this? Um, And the last one, which is one that um, came from thinking about the chief actors I've been exposed to in South Africa, which is the question of, have you built yourself a reputation of integrity? Because once people know that you're someone with very strong integrity, you're less likely to get pushed into the same places that people could get pushed that don't have that same reputation. So it's also a hedge. It's something that protects you down the line. And I'm sure there's going to be more of those. It's worth spending a bit of time thinking about what are the hedges you need to put in place in your life to avoid the the, the negligence and professional conduct. that's what we had for today, and um, I'm giving back to Colin for a couple of announcements before lunch.
0: Thanks, Niku. Um, before the announcements, please join me in thanking Niku for leading an excellent interactive um, professionalism session. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so, the good news is this does count to the professionalism requirements of both the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries as well as the Actuarial Society. Um, Then just the lunch announcements, Um, lunch will now be served, soft drinks can be ordered at the society's cost, Uh, we will reconvene in this venue at 1.30 for the panel discussion on closed books. Um, And then just in terms of the lunch arrangements, um, lunch will be served in the ballroom, so it's just down the passage around the corner. Um, And then just a final reminder for those of you that want to swap your parking tickets to please do so during the lunch hour. Um, it It won't be possible after lunch, so please remember to do that. Thank you very much.